Hi, welcome to the Neuro Neurosec podcast, where we are we we are on a mission to flip the script on neurodiversity and cybersecurity, technology, society, and culture. My name is Nathan Chung, and today my special guest is Sean Smith. Welcome, Sean. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, to kick things off, can you tell us more about yourself? Sure, I'm a counselor and psychotherapist by trade, and I started Don't Dis My Ability about six and a half years ago. And I, I work with uh, uniquely gifted neurodivergent folks and, and their their parents and their families. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of advocacy work and I also consult in different industries. That's incredible. So uh, being neurodivergent yourself, what, what are your, your typical day-to-day -day strategies for coping? Uh, one of the big ones for me, man, is is keeping a, a running to do list of all the stuff that I need to do in the run of a day, and uh, and this is something I actually help people with a lot because you know, and you and I talked about this. Like we get so into what we're doing that we'll forget to eat sometimes. Uh, yes. You know, like just basic things. So I actually have a running to do list on the note section of my my iPhone with a little bubble beside it, so I can check things off as I go through. But I mean, I have everything from you know, make my bed, shower, get dressed. Um, you know, and, and more labor intensive stuff like work wise on there too. But I always start my day off with those things like eating breakfast, you know, making sure I walk my dog, all these things, because as my mind starts to, to cycle, it, it can kind of get fixated on something, which means I, I will forget about the rest of the things that I need to get done. And then before you know it, um, you know, an hour, two hours has passed and I've barely done anything that I needed to do on my list. So I really do try to stay regimented to the list. But um, you know, I, I think one of the challenges is that any tool is only as good as the person who uses it, right? So it, it does take a tremendous amount of uh, discipline to to stay on the list. And, um, you know, no one's perfect. Every now and again, I kind of veer away and I've got to reel myself in and, and, and um, bring myself back to task. But that, that's that's a big part for me, man, is that that daily checklist for sure. And you're absolutely right. Like, similar to me, I'm late to the game, but the list is just so important because sometimes I, it's something as simple as eating food. Sometimes I forget. <laughs> Absolutely, man. It, it's, uh, you know, knock on wood. I haven't forgotten anything like picking my kids up from school or daycare, <laughs> you know, like, but, but like that's we also, important. when we don't eat, man, I think a lot of us get hangry and then that's, yes. it, it just, it, that's, a, that in of itself is a, a trigger. And then when we go into other situations, you know, we're not really, uh, we're not present and we're not happy um and we're not all, always that great to be around when when we are hangry so <laughs> i really do encourage people to you know bring snacks and, and have lots of snacks around so that you know and again to put little reminders in like it's it's really important for me i'm a visual kinesthetic learner so i really do rely on you know setting up my calendar so that i get those notifications like hey sean yes. you know you need to eat or hey you got to get up and go for a bike ride or, or you know all those all the little things that just seem to escape us because we're, we're kind of macro big picture thinkers right and yes. sometimes the micro stuff just kind of slips through the cracks or or sometimes if it's something we're really interested in we can get into the micro but we don't really understand the macro part of how it all comes together absolutely okay <clears throat> uh, next question the looking back at my own life and career it was not always moving forward it was full of ups and downs more downs and ups I have failed before. I had jobs that last sometimes lasted less than a year. I was part of nonprofits and companies that have failed, and I have often been bullied and treated like garbage at work. Overall, it's it is hard while living with neurodiverse conditions. Has has it been the same for you? And do you have any story to share? Yeah, I mean, I could write a book. I, actually, I am writing a book. It's just taking a while to get out, <laughs> but you know. I, um, a big part of my story, you know, to go backwards, like th this, this is what I do now. And, and I always tell people when I share my story, like, you know, what I do isn't nearly as exciting as how I, I got here. Uh, I was first diagnosed with ADHD and attentive type when I was 30. And prior to my diagnosis, it took me four years to finish three years of high school, 32 attempts during the 18 credits required to graduate and failing grade, failing grade 10 math four times. Um, I started playing football in my first year of high school. By my second year, I was an all-star. I got recruiting packages from every major Canadian university with a football team. Wow. And it was such a high. It was, yeah, man. But then That's it was incredible. such a low because I didn't have the grades to get into any of these schools. 
So it, it was like, you know, I get called to the principal's office and, and not that I get called to the principal's office a lot, but this was the only time that it was like, you know, for something good, <laughs> you know? So I get back to class and I'm opening up all these envelopes and one after one, I realized like I didn't meet the minimum uh, educational requirement to get in. But uh, a college from Quebec actually snuck me in. The head registrar was also the defensive coordinator for the football team and they snuck me in. It took me three years to finish a two-year program, but I did it. Uh, moved back home to attend university, and I, I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree with a double major in sociology and psychology, but I graduated with a 2.3 GPA. And then fast forward to being diagnosed at 30 and taking prescribed medication, which basically took my, my thought process from dial-up to high speed. Um, I went back to a mature student, took five courses, earned a new GPA of 3.7. And then in 2010, I was accepted to the Master's of Education and Counseling Psychology program at the University of New Brunswick on academic probation, graduated a year later at the top of my class. So wow. very neat lens through which to, to help people. But also, you know, when you talk about like the employment side of things, I've had 22 different jobs. I've literally done everything from shovel shit as a landscaper to working at McDonald's. Um, I, I worked security. I was a head doorman at a, a nightclub. Um, I was a, a blackjack dealer in Lake Tahoe where I actually learned how to do mental math. I was a sheriff's officer. I worked two murder trials. I was the therapeutic foster parent in the state of Maine with my wife. Uh, worked in residential treatment facilities for at-risk youth in the Northwest Territories. Um, and also worked in the nonprofit sector here in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And, and that really was kind of the, the driving force for me getting into and creating my own, my own business was you know, I was somebody who self-identified as having a disability, and yet, you know, the other people in the organization really were more focused, it seemed, on making money than helping, you know, and I, and I also noticed this, this cyclical type of funding pattern where, you know, these nonprofits would identify a, a problem, um, create a proposal, get funding for the problem, and then create a resource or a program, but yet that problem still exists. So it just keeps going around and around and around. Um, so I like to say, you know, they're busy talking about progress. I, I like to be busy making it. Absolutely. And sadly, I've seen the same at many nonprofits. Looking at entrepreneurship, most entrepreneurship is a choice not often considered by many people with neurodiverse conditions. When, whereas they, a lot of people, they, when they have this condition, they have the skills that would allow them to succeed, such as yourself. What led you to start your own business and do you feel it is a suitable uh, occupation compared to traditional jobs? Hell yes. <laughs> um, you know, it, for me, it was, it was kind of a, a perfect storm situation where I was getting, I was filling a mat leave position for a, a nonprofit. And so the person was coming back, which meant I was gonna be on uh, unemployment benefits. And so I took that opportunity to tap into a program that we have available in New Brunswick called the, uh, uh, self-employment benefit program. So if you're on uh, unemployment benefits, uh, you can put a, a business plan together and submit it. And if it's approved, then you you can have your benefits extended and, and you get some help with your business. So I went through that program and without that, I, I wouldn't have been able to uh, to survive because they, they extend your funding for a certain period of time. And regardless of how much money you make through your business, it doesn't impact the, the level of funding that you get. So that was, that was a definitely a, a huge help. But I mean, I, I think that one of the biggest problems that I experienced is, you know, a lot of times the people who are closest to us, the people who should provide the most love and support often provide the least, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship as, as a possibility. Um, because they want something that's safe for us, right? They, they don't want risk involved. If we work for somebody else, then they think that there's, you know, we'll require less and that, you know, entrepreneurship is just, there, there's too much involved. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and say that it's easy. You know, no one ever said being awesome would be easy. There, <laughs> there is a, a toll that we pay for operating at a certain level. And although I do run a successful business, it doesn't mean that it hasn't been without challenges, you know, and I think that's um, one of the, the, you know, entrepreneurship, I think, is often glamorized. You know, I, I really tr do try to explain to people it's a lot more than headshots and one-liners. There, there's a lot of, um, you know, going through the trenches. And, and I really do try to share a lot of this stuff, Nathan, because I think entrepreneurs who are thinking about it need to know that, like, yes, you know, one, one day, um, you know, the water stopped running in my house. You know, uh, I didn't have the money to hire somebody to fix it. So me and a buddy, Doug, you know, about seven, eight feet down, had to find the wellhead, 
um, figure out what was going on. And then I had to hire a company to, to come in and expose the wellhead. But like, you know, when, when the water stops running in your house, like everything else stops too, right? Like life, work, everything, because it has to get fixed. And, and these types of things just kept happening. We had, you know, a hole in our roof. We had water coming down through the walls, mold. Like these, these are all things that, you know, people don't talk about, but need to, because this, this is what it means to be an entrepreneur. Like if, if you don't experience anxiety and, and depression as an entrepreneur, then I, I like to say, you're, you know, you're either spending somebody else's money or you're just not doing it right. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be ups and downs. There's just, there's no two ways about it. Like, and I remember, you know, in our initial conversation, I told you, like, there were times when I didn't know when the next check was going to come in. So I would go to Costco, I would buy big giant cans of tomatoes and I, I would make uh, tomato sauce and jar it and freeze it because I didn't know when money was going to roll in. And mm -hmm. while I was at Costco, I would have bought like the big giant thing of pasta <laughs> to go with the sauce because that, <laughs> that was our reality, right? Um, so I, I really, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I think that a lot of people get caught up in what they think is success in, in those glamour headshots and those catchy yes. one-liners. And they think, oh, everything looks so easy. Well, social media has a way of doing that, right? Yes. You know, people will come and see me and they'll, they'll see me on the street and they're like, oh, wow, you know, congratulations, congratulations, you're you're doing so well. And I just think, then how about you share my shit for me? You know, like, how about you help promote me? You know, like, just help help a guy out, you know? It, it, Absolutely. So there's, there's just, there's a lot more to it definitely than, than I think people think. But you know, everybody is going to have challenges. Like for me, the, the financial side and, and some of the organizational stuff is the stuff that that's hard for me. So I think it's important to kind of identify your strengths, but also your challenges and then find people who can help you with those challenges because that like no one can do this on their own. And, and anybody who thinks that they can is they're just, they're fooling themselves. Like you're going to need help from somebody at some point. So the, the sooner you can identify what you need help with and ask for it, the better off you'll be in the long run. For sure. Absolutely. And I can, I can identify with that as well, because having autism, it, for some reason, it seems really hard to ask for help. <laughs> it's like a mental barrier. I'm sure you saw the same. Yeah. And, and so like I mentioned that I was, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 30. Um, I was recently diagnosed as being autistic as well. And, and so um, asking for help has been difficult, but I think for me, it's that I, I operate at a certain level and when I ask for help, my expectation is that the person I'm asking is going to be able to, you know, their, their work will be at the same level as mine. And then when I get it back, I always seem to be disappointed because it's not. And so it makes it hard to ask for help because again, we have these high expectations where we are high achievers. I think that's also, you know, a misconception of people with disabilities is that, you know, we, we don't contribute or we're not able to contribute. Well, man, we're doing next level shit. Like we yes. just, you know, so yes. there are bound to be things that we're not that great at. And so it, it, you know, it can be hard to ask for help, especially if the people we need to ask are the ones that don't really support us to begin with. Correct. I totally see that. But another question. So when you create, create your businesses, did you work with a group of friends or did you just do it on your own at first? So I started on my own and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Eugene Fowler, who owns, uh, he's the founder of Luguru Animation and Games. He really encouraged me to get involved with my local startup community. And I was really hesitant because I'm, I am my own product. And, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, companies that went into accelerators had a, had a tangible product or they had an app or some kind of tech that they were trying to, to get out there. And, and so he really encouraged me to do it. And so I applied to the, the B4C uh, um, Social Entrepreneur Accelerator um, and was accepted. So I was one of eight businesses and it was, uh, it was pretty neat because although there were eight businesses, there were two of us that were solo entrepreneurs. And so we, we kind of worked together and it was interesting because it seemed like everybody else who had a team, they spent a lot of time kind of uh, bickering and arguing about what they should be doing. Whereas with us, we were just, because it was just us, we could really help each other out and move things along. So I definitely had help in that way. And it was an eight week program. And then I was able to uh, apply for up to $5,000 worth of funding for marketing. And so I was able to, to get that and uh, used it to create a, a short, uh, an animated short that kind of describes me and who I am. Um, I used some of it for a website. And then I used the the last portion to go speak at a conference in, in Florida as uh, an expert on disability related startup companies. So I definitely had some help, man. And, and I think like when I got into that space, it, it was really kind of bizarre for me because entrepreneurs started flocking to me left, right and center. And so I just, it kind of came to me that, you know, 
I think most entrepreneurs are neurodivergent. They may be diagnosed or, or diagnosed. I, I think a lot of them are undiagnosed. Um, but I just, I really found it fascinating how I started getting emails and calls and, and people wanted to talk to me at different events and stuff. It was really, it, it was really kind of reaffirming that, you know, we're all going through this, just not everybody's talking about it. And I, I think that's a, a real shame. Absolutely. Next question, uh, being neurodivergent, do you feel that your traits give you an advantage to make entrepreneurship much more fulfilling and advantageous? Absolutely. And I, I think a big part of this is the, you know, my story and sharing my story, right? It, and I, I again, I, I think that this is part of the, the struggle with other neurodivergent individuals who are thinking about entrepreneurship. You know, uh, some people don't like to share their story. They're not they're not yes. in a space where they're comfortable doing that yet. And, and that's not for me to, <clears throat> to, to judge. If they're not there, they're not there. And, and you know, I'm not going to try to convince them otherwise. All I can do is, you know, inform them of, you know, when you share your story and it becomes part of your business, people will then relate to you, right? Back to Simon Sinek, people buy the why, not the what, right? So when you share that why about what you do and why you started it, people will resonate with that. And when, as people resonate with it, they're they're naturally drawn to you. And, the, and then you, you have something going and you just kind of build momentum on that. Absolutely. But I think more at the, I say, diving into the weeds, like, are there any specific neurodivergent traits that you have that makes makes being an entrepreneur like that makes you more comfortable to be to be an entrepreneur Any specific traits if you're uh, i don't know about tra- like i i think resilience for sure i, I think that's a, a key 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 trait i mean if you don't um i, I don't want to say develop a thick skin but if you're somebody who is sensitive to people saying no then it's going to be extremely challenging because you're going to experience a lot of no's before you get to that yes. I think a lot of people have an idea of what they're going to do. And, and like I, I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs and when they come to me with a business idea, I say, that's great, but that's not what you're going to end up doing. Like it's going to change. It has to evolve in some way, shape or form, right? So it's great to have that initial idea, but if you're not open to it evolving, then you may be stuck and fixated on something that may not work. So I think, you know, you need to be open to hearing what other people have to say, which can be uh, a challenge for a lot of us, right? We kind of get fixated on something. And, um, but I, I think, you know, I don't know how to describe this as a trait, but like the way that my mind operates and cycles allows me to see things that other people don't really pick up on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and this is part of the, the, I think the innovative side of my, my way of thinking is that, you know, when I see something or somebody has something to show me, I'll say that, that's great, but it doesn't work. And I can show you how to make it better. Um, an example of that would be, you know, like, I think I mentioned this to you before, my daughter plays ringette, which is, you know, that, that's in a hockey arena. And so when, um, and they always ask parents to volunteer. So I have to run the shot clock or the scoreboard. And in each arena, they're all different systems. And and like the city owns all of them. So I, I it, it just baffles me why they yes. have one system for every arena so that you wouldn't have to reteach yourself every time you go to a new rink. Well, I just, you know, so again, the way that my mind works is like, why are they spending like ten to $30,000 on this jumbo, you know, scoreboard that has all these bulbs that have to get changed and all this stuff. Like they could have one big giant LCD screen and they could have an iPad or a tablet with an app that could keep score where they could just change things and it wouldn't be so complicated and they could have them in, in every arena, right? So this, this just, it's how my mind naturally works. I, I used to try to like, shut it off or suppress my my ideas but now i've just kind of come to embrace them and i actually have uh, a different note section where i've got like ideas for apps and inventions and all this stuff they may never see the light of day but i always tell people this is my first business it's not my last um you know the, the goal is that when i have generated enough income with this business that then i'll be able to kind of look at low risk high reward for the next idea that's in the queue see how far i can take it and go from there Great. And I think you brought up a really good point. It's being neurodivergent. Sometimes it feels like you have this light bulb in your head, but sadly for many of us, when we mask, we often turn that light off because we, there's just so much pressure to turn that off and to be just like everyone else. And I think that's a tragedy because we, we, it's like turning off our creative, creative self that makes us different from other people. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, Matt, the, the term masking has just been something, you know, I, I think in the last two, three, four years, maybe that's really become prominent as, as a term that people identify with. And so really it, it means that you're not being your authentic self, right? You're, you're being a, you know, essentially a shell of who you are to, to appease the people who you're surrounded by. Um, and I, I really, in the work that I do, I really try to encourage people to, to think about what a friend is because Facebook has done a, a wonderful job at redefining what a friend is. Um, so I really invite people to, you know, kind of close their eyes, think about a person. And if the value that they add to the relationship just pops into your head, then they're a friend. Uh, if it doesn't immediately come to you, then they're probably a friendly acquaintance. And, and when you kind of think of it that way, your circle of friends shrinks considerably. But those are the people that you can lean on in, in times of need, for sure. Absolutely. Well, no, nothing came to mind about entrepreneurship. I can imagine some people are, I say, hesitant or afraid to start their own business because things like they they have they are they're a parent and they have kids, so they think, oh. They don't. They will not have time to do their own business. What would you say to that for the parents? Um, it really depends on on the situation. I mean, I do work with a lot of parents who are not able to work because their their child requires a, a certain level of care that prevents them from working. So, um, what I typically try to do with parents, if it's something that they're interested in, is I, I try to explore what their passions are and then figure out if there's a way to turn that into a, a small business or a micro business. Oh. Um, you know, it, but it, for me, it's, and again, being a psychotherapist, it's all about person centered, right? It's meeting people where they're at and, and figuring out uh, with them, you know, driven by them, which, which way they want to go. So I have um, one client who uh, is not able to work because of the level of care her, her son requires, and she's really into crafts. And so we, we've kind of looked at, you know, creating one product in, you know, in one season so that when the next season comes, that's when it's time to sell. So always kind of being ahead by a season and, and creating a list of products that are always in queue. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the level of care her son requires has kind of prevented her from being able to, to do all these things. So we're trying to kind of, you know, scale back a little bit um, and, and figure out what is doable. Um, but I, I think part of it is the belief of someone who, you know, like I, I'm a national award winning entrepreneur. So when I work with people and I say, you know, I think that you've got something here, um, they start to listen to me instead of the, the negative voices that they're surrounded with to tell them it can't be done or this isn't a great idea or you'll never make any money off of that. Right. Sometimes it just takes somebody else who's not in that circle to believe in them, to give them a little confidence that, you know, there, there is something here. Um, you know, I don't know that it's going to be a, a you know, a million dollar product, but it, it will definitely put a little more cash in your pocket and and give you a little freedom to do some of the things that maybe you're not able to do because they're on a fixed income. Absolutely. And you just talked about something that's very interesting that just something just came to mind. I think for many of us who are neurodivergent, there's the, we often have the negative voices saying not to do something, but also in life, like many of us, we, we've gone through bullying, we've gone through many, I say, negative situations, which it just crushes the, our confidence. So in, in your experience doing this work, what, how do you fight back against that? How do you gain that confidence to, to get, out of the, get out of bed, so to speak, and to change the world? Sure. So I, I think where my confidence came from was when I went back to Everett as a mature student um, so I, I mentioned that I, I got my master's of education in counseling psychology. I actually wanted to get into social work. And so mm -hmm. I had applied to uh, get my bachelor of social work and my master's uh, of education. And I didn't get into the, the bachelor of social work program. Um, in the, the school's language and their affirmative action policy at that time, they only recognized blacks, aboriginals and persons with physical disabilities. And oh, so right. I ended up filing two separate human rights complaints against the university um, because they didn't acknowledge uh, mental disorders or neurological disorders. And uh, so, the, the, again, like I want to set the context here. Um, my wife is in the social work program that I'm trying to get into. We have a two-year-old son and my wife is pregnant. And we're both on funding um, through our, our government to, to attend post-secondary. So money's tight, stress is high. Um, and here I am trying to get into school and I'm having to, to file human rights complaints, um, you know, that it was a valuable lesson. I mean, I ended up sitting, uh, you know, I went to the Human Rights Commission. I sat across from the president of the university at that time. And I, 
I told him I took my grad ring off out of disgust. I uh, wouldn't put it back on until things were made right. And he said, Sean, I'm going to go back up the hill and, and make you proud of your alma mater again. And the next correspondence I got was from a law firm. They spent tens of thousands of dollars to take me on over a two and a half year period. And so I lost the war, but I, you know, I lost the battle, but I won the war. They'll never admit this, but they changed their policy because of me. I, I forced them to do that. Wow. And so they, they changed their policy to make it a more inclusive policy. And so while I'm upgrading, I had two classes with one prof, um, uh, Dr. Roland Christian, and they were native studies classes. And so I was also trying to enroll in our province's version of affirmative action called the Equal Employment Opportunity Program. And so I can't tell you how many jobs I applied for through the program, but I can tell you how many interviews I had, none. And so I'm, I'm bilingual. I speak fluent in, in uh, English and French. I had a university degree, was newly diagnosed. Um, and just saw all the potential, right? Things just started happening differently in my head. The pieces of the puzzle were coming together. And so I realized something, it wasn't me, I'm awesome. It had to be them. And so I, I wrote one paper worth 100% of my grade uh, for both classes. And my paper was called, uh, Systemic Discrimination is Commonly Practiced by the Province of New Brunswick, a Comprehensive Analysis of the Equal Employment Opportunity Program. And I got two A's. And wow. what I uncovered was this huge scam uh, that our, our province was running where, you know, the goal of the program was to um, recruit and retain people from the three target minority population. So visible minorities, uh, First Nations and persons with disabilities uh, for for a period of two years and then make every effort to retain them. Well, essentially what I uncovered was that they were letting, letting a lot of these people go before they had enough insurable hours to collect their unemployment benefits. So essentially what they were doing was exploiting people from the three target minority populations. Oh my. So this is where I, I came up with the the idea of the inclusion illusion, right? So a lot of the stuff that gets done is actually a smoke screen to give the idea that something's being done when really there's nothing happening in the background. And so this is where, you know, people around me were telling me like, the government wouldn't do that. Like you're a conspiracy theorist, mm -hmm. all this stuff. And so my confidence started to grow as I was, you know, discovering all this stuff and, and just, you know, it wasn't me, it was, it was this like, and so when people tell me that the, the system, the system is broken, I really challenge them because that implies it was intended to work when it, when it is not like I had confidential mm -hmm. stamp documents from, mm -hmm. from ministers saying the program was broken, could be fixed for next to nothing. And the recommendations never saw the light of day. Right. So as I kept getting information like that coming out on top, I, that, that's really what helped me grow the confidence to be like, you know what, I've been listening to the wrong people because all the people I was listening to told me that no, the government would never do this. And then, you know, I did the legwork and found out that I was right. Right. Wow. So all of those things, it was extremely validating. And, and so, you know, again, shortly after they started, they revamped the program. Uh, they'll never say that it was because of me, but I know that because I'd asked them like in the 25 year history of the program up until that point, nobody had ever asked the questions that I'd asked. Right. So it had never been audited. Right. And when I asked them what their measure of what their measure of success was, uh, it was whether or not the money got spent. And I said, that, no, 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 no. That's fiscal responsibility. Yeah. That's the only type of responsibility you're trying to measure here. And, and so it's just stuff like that. Right. So my confidence just kind of grew and grew and grew. Um, and I always, you know, I treat each conversation as an opportunity for impact. So every time I have an impactful conversation, it, it kind of, it, it, it gets me high a little bit, you know, like, so all these kind of things that I do in helping people, you know, selfishly are, are for me, but selflessly, it also helps them in the process. Absolutely. And I, I really love that story because being no diverse myself, sometimes the feeling is I cannot change things, but based on your story, it is very empowering, very empowering. Thank you. Oh, and we got one question from the chat. Uh, I, I'd love to know your thoughts on neurodivergent people who are looking at starting a career as a creator in social media, live streaming, podcasting, et cetera. Sure. Um, well, as someone who's had uh, a failed radio show and two failed podcasts, I think I have a lot to add to this. Um, <laughs> excuse me. I, I think the biggest thing is just to get started and, and to do it. Uh, I think a lot of us, um, you know, we get caught up in the minutia of all the things that we need to do to make it look perfect. Um, you know, I, I just, I'll say this, so, you know, sometimes I swear a little bit. Like I, when I was first getting started, um, I had a shitty little YouTube channel and I was making these horrible videos in my basement and an organization called Different Brains found me um, and sent me a syndication agreement, right? So it's not, it's not about, 
you know, the, the lighting. It's not about, you know, the sound quality, yeah, maybe a little bit, because you need to, you know, you need to sound audible. Um, but it's really the content, right? And and I'll go back to my buddy, uh, Gene Fowler, who, who told me, you know, like, he said, when you are undeniably the best at what you do, you won't have to look for people. People will look for you. So that's really just kind of always stuck in my head. So I wouldn't be so concerned about trying to figure out what everybody else is doing. Just do your own thing, right? Because as long as you make it about somebody else, it can never truly be about you. So figure stuff out on your own. If you need help, when you get to that point, ask somebody in your network, you know, and, and I, I did that as well. You know, when I, when I got to a point where, you know, I, I wanted to get things figured out a little bit, I, you know, I asked for help in my network and somebody helped me set up the lights. Somebody helped me pick out a webcam and a microphone. So I, I think that's a big, a big challenge amongst us is that we have this network of people who want to help us. They genuinely want to help, but if we don't ask, they don't know that we need it. Right. So I think that, you know, you can definitely tap into your network and use them as a resource. And, and a lot of people would love to help you out. You just need to let them know that you need it. Absolutely. And I can totally relate to what you just said. Uh, when I started my podcast last year, I was totally, I just kept thinking I'm just going to fail because I wasn't using anything that no fancy graphics and, with my autism and speech impediments, like I thought no way in heck I'm going to listen to a autistic person with speech difficulties, but I, I consider myself successful. And the people who listened to my podcast, they were very much impacted by the stories they heard. And that is very empowering. Even looking back, it was hard to get over that first hump of just getting started. Yeah, I, I think that's that's usually the biggest hurdle, right? Is yes. is the, the getting started part? Like, you know, you can improve on something that exists, but you can't improve on something that doesn't. So it, it's not about getting it right; it's actually about screwing it up a whole bunch of times. Because yes. I, I know, and I, I'm pretty sure you're the same, Nathan. Like, I rarely make the same mistake twice. So the more mistakes I make, the quicker I'm going to learn. So I, I actually try to screw up all the time, uh, and I know that that sounds weird, but that's how that's a big part of how I learn. So. It's, it's something that I've just kind of learned to embrace, which I think, you know, as men with, you know, toxic masculinity being an issue is, is can be a really hard thing to admit that we failed or we didn't do something right. You know, I, I think, again, to go back to that entrepreneurship piece, right, people making it seem as though they've got it all together, you know, the people who seem like they have it all together and, and that's all they put out there, those are the ones that I worry about the most because everybody Absolutely. has their shit, just not Absolutely. everybody's wearing it on their sleeve, right? You're, you have a great point. I think social media exaggerates this too much. We always see the positive. We don't see the person, their failures or suffering. I think you're one of the very few I know who openly admit to having an authentic life of ups and downs, success and failure. And I think that's awesome. Being authentic carries so much more weight than like the people who make millions and millions of dollars and get their names in the paper. I really enjoy the authentic stories. I, I do too. And I mean, I hope to be one of those people someday that has my name in the paper because I've earned a million dollars. <laughs> but but I, I think part of that is in, in the sharing, right? Like, and this is how I connect with people as a psychotherapist as well, right? Like, I, I think that to have somebody sit across from you and, with the expectation that they're just going to share everything without you sharing a piece of yourself is not yes. realistic, right? It, hard, it, yes. it, it creates an us versus them type of situation or a, a hierarchy. Uh, and I mean, you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt, uh, shorts and, and sneakers, and, and this is my day to day. Like I, I'm, a, I, you know, a, a true believer in not putting myself above or, or below anyone. And when you think about neurodivergent people and when they've asked for help, you know, the, from professionals, the people who, who are standing across from them, you know, usually have what I call a suit of armor, which is the button up shirt and tie and the khakis and, you know, and, and I think that inadvertently it, it creates a hierarchy. Uh, which I, I really don't subscribe to at all. Correct. We're just, we're people. Me right? too. I put I my totally clothes on the same that. way you put yours on and, you know. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, you got a really great question in the chat. What if you don't feel like you're awesome or the best at what you do? Do you have any recommendations for that? That's a really good question. Sure. Um, well, if you don't feel like you're awesome or the best at what you do, um, you know, no one starts out being awesome, right? Like no, nobody just tries something the first time and, and gets it instantly, right? I mean, some people do, but that's a very, very small portion of, of the population. It takes practice, right? Like me doing this interview now is coming off so well because I've done 50 interviews. 
I didn't sound like this in my first interview, right? I didn't sound like this in my second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh. And something that I've also done is I've gone back and I've listened and I've watched the interviews that I've done, right? So you, you, you have to be willing to put in the work. Like things don't just happen. You have to work hard to make them happen. And it Absolutely. takes practice. It, you know, you need structure, routine, and, and consistency. And you got to figure out, you know, how badly do you want something? And, and <clears throat> excuse me, it, it sometimes, especially you know, having the ADHD component is is tricky because, you know, there's something shiny. Woo! You go in that direction. There's something else shiny. Woo! You go in that direction. So yes. sometimes we have to reel ourselves in. And and part of my business is that like I, I'll do you know four or five different things, cycle through one, get to a point where maybe I can't do it anymore. And then I've got to go on to something else. So it's not always about doing one thing. It's figuring out, you know, what, what do you like to do? What are you good at? That kind of falls under the, the same umbrella. I also have a lot of, um, you know, I push myself in, in different ways. So, you know, I, I, I'm also an amateur chef and chocolatier. Wow. Uh, and so these are all things that like I, I taught myself how to do. Like I, I would watch videos I would buy high-end dark chocolate. I would shave it down with a, a you know, really big knife. I learned how to temper chocolate. Uh, I made my own cherry cordials, like cherry chocolates. Like I made my own fondant, you know, and, and all this stuff takes practice. Like the first time I made them, you know, they tasted okay. I mean, it's chocolate and cherries and, you know, sugar. So, I mean, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't as good as the second and third time that I made them. Um, the last thing I made was uh, artisanal hard candy. I, I got into watching uh, all, all these uh, companies make like uh, hard candy by hand and putting designs in, in the candy and all this stuff. And so I started doing that uh, and made lemonade candy. And, and, you know, I learned a lot about it. Like, you know, when, when you're working with sugar and you color it, if you just leave it, it'll be uh, transparent. But when you start stretching the sugar, um, it, it creates kind of like a, a silky, glossy finish. Um, and so I just started doing that, but then it's, it's summertime. So it's a little bit too sticky. It's not a really good time to be making candy. So I switched to a, you know, a different thing where now I, I used to be a blackjack dealer. And so now I, I bought a kind of a, a felt mat and I've got some cards and I'm teaching myself how to, how to do different card tricks. Um, so it, it's, it's not about, you know, figuring one thing out, right? It, it's about trying to figure out a whole bunch of things, take something as far as you think you can take it, and then it, and then switch gears and do something else. It really isn't about doing one thing. It's about trying to do a lot of different things and trying to do it under the same umbrella. I love okay. that. I, I never thought about that before, but I love it. It's really good advice. Next, next question is, the, I heard you gave an amazing talk at the University of Miami titled, Nobody Ever Said Being Awesome Would Be Easy. Some of the highlights that caught my attention was about failing to recognize when individuals face struggles and also being, while, while being un, misdiagnosed. Can you tell us more about these two areas and, and your views? Sorry, have your views and thoughts changed since, since you gave that talk? Uh, not, they haven't really changed, but I mean, my, the, the message behind it is really, you know, looking at our education system and, and how we're setting kids up to fail. You know, like if, the goal of if the goal of inclusion is to get kids with disabilities to be more like kids without disabilities, that's actually assimilation, right? Mm -hmm. So really looking at what inclusion is, which to me right now is a buzz, buzzword for funding. Um, you know, inclusion isn't a thing that you do. It's it's it really is a way of being. And it, and if we have to teach our kids about inclusion, and I really want people to think about this. If we have to teach our kids about inclusion, it means somebody's already taught them how to exclude, right? That's the issue. It's not the kids. It's the people in their world who are teaching them how to exclude before they even get to school and to create this hierarchy of differences and, and, and how people who are viewed as different are then seen as less than, right? Mm -hmm. So when I talk about, you know, being awesome, you know, nobody said being awesome would be easy. It's kind of like, you know, the, the struggle that we, the struggles that we go through um, to get to a point where, you know, we can start to realize that, you know, a lot of the things people told us growing up were not actually truths, you know, and, and it, again, it makes it hard because these are the people who, who are closest to us, you know, like mm -hmm. my parents told me that if I had a university degree, I'd be set. That was a lie. They told me if I was bilingual, I would be set. That was also a lie. They told me that I'd have one job and that would be my career. That was another lie, right? I've had 22 different jobs. So when, when we have this feeling of not being able to meet people's expectations, 
right? Of not having that one job and moving around and having a lot of different jobs. We feel people's, you know, it, it could be disappointment. It could be shame. Sometimes it's guilt and, and they're feeling like they didn't do enough for us and we didn't turn out the way that they wanted if they'd only done this, that, or the other thing when none of it really mattered to begin with, right? So it, it's really kind of shedding all of that and coming out on your own and, and realizing that you are awesome. But, you know, it, it isn't easy. And, and anybody who says that it is easy, they're lying because it's not true. It, it, it's hard. It takes hard work. Like, again, things don't just happen. We make them happen. So if you're, if you're thinking that an opportunity is just going to fall into your lap, it, it's not, you know, the, the minute you stop hustling to, to get things going, everything else stops too. So th this is, you know, I, I try to get people to understand that this isn't a short sprint. It's a marathon. It really is. And, and you've got to also recognize when you need to hand off that baton for a little bit and take a rest and take a break for yourself, for your own mental health. Um, and, and, you know, allow someone else to come in and maybe help you or, or schedule time off, you know, take time off, do something you love. Um, you know, I talked about me being a, an amateur chef and some of the other things that I do when I find that I'm having difficulty processing something and it, and it could be work, could be personal, whatever it is, I go into my kitchen and, and I'll, you know, I go deep into whatever process it is. And by the time I'm done, I'm able to kind of reflect and look at what, what the challenge was with a completely different lens. And I'm able to process, process things much more efficiently. Um, so that's definitely one of the, the coping strategies that I use, but yeah, that's, that was kind of the premise of the talk. Hmm, that is incredible. And you brought up an interesting point. I think for many of us who are neurodivergent, I think the the first issue, like, it comes down to family. So we grew up with family and parents, and that's our first source of, I say, growing up and the most like validation. We need that validation from parents. But kind of like how you said, sometimes they don't always give you the best advice. <laughs> so hard question for you is when if people feel that their own family isn't really helping them raise them, raise you up or push you forward, where can you find that validation support if it's not in your, not coming from your parents or family? Sure. Well, I think it's a, a tricky thing, you know, like I, I love my parents, but I don't always like them and I, and I don't always like what they say or, or some of the things that they've done. Um, so I think it's it's tricky. Uh, you know, I, I usually kind of share an anecdote of, you know, I'm at a place in my life now where the glass is half full. It wasn't always that way, but it is now. Uh, we all have people in our lives for whom their glass is half empty. And no matter how hard or how much they try to take from our cup to fill their own, their cup will never be full. But the real question is, what do we get out of letting them try? Right. Uh, so why do you know, and I, and I experienced this in my own family, right? If, you know, I have good news, I go share it with my family and they'll try to take me down a peg, right? Like it's just, so I've learned, I'm not gonna share good news with them, right? I, I, when you share good news with somebody, here, here's a little, a little tip, uh, they, they should celebrate with you. And if they do anything but celebrate with you, then maybe they're not the right people to tell. And sometimes that it's, it's kind of a strange feeling because you feel like, oh, you know, you should wanna tell your family. Well, when you tell them if, if all they have is something negative to say, then why would you bother? Right. So I, I would focus more on the people who are excited and want to celebrate with you and, and want to kind of prop you up and, and help you out. Because the for some reason, the way that our brain works, it, it especially, you know, neurodivergent thinkers, our, our thoughts tend to fixate on a lot of the negative stuff. And so, yes. you know, a, a negative comment from someone that you you hold up here um, weighs way more than somebody who might be, say, down here. And it impacts you and it sets you back and, and, it, and they kind of get in your head and then you just spiral in a lot of different ways when, you know, you, you could have cut that off right from the onset. It, it didn't need to happen. Right. So kind of taking stock of who those people are in your life who are really going to be there to prop you up and also, you know, re recognizing who's not. When, when I won um, my Startup Canada Award, I made a, a point of thanking everybody who helped me, but more importantly, uh, thanking the people who didn't. Um, because those are the people who really are the inspiration that, that really drive you, right? Like, again, no one ever said being awesome would be easy. There's a lot of things you have to figure out on your own. Um, and, and it's, it's hard. You're going to fail a lot, uh, but you just, you got to keep at it. And I, I think for those who are on the fence about entrepreneurship, you know, this, this is, um, you know, there, for people who are, I, I would say true entrepreneurs, there is no other way. You're going to, you know, what I started doing in my business is not what I'm doing now, right? I, I think you people have to, you just, it, it's kind of an inequality. 
And, and if you're on the fence about whether or not you have it, there's only one way to find out, and that's to dive right into the deep end. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I totally agree. There's like, I like what you said earlier about failing, like failing and just the bouncing back from failure. Because I think for like my looking back in my life, I, I'm similar. I had so many jobs, but I didn't really have validation from parents. Like, for example, I, I work in cybersecurity, which is a hot, amazing field. But my mom, yeah. she thinks of it as the, she thinks I'm, I'm a janitor. <laughs> like, all right. I, I, I totally get that, man. Like my, my family owns a, a, a landscaping and, and snow removal company. And like, it's a million dollar company, man. And, and you know, my dad's been a, a laborer for a lot of his life. And the fact that I make as much money as I do listening and speaking to people just does not register with him. Like he just, he has a really hard time grasping that. And I've just tried, I, I, I just don't bother explaining it to him anymore. Right. Like he'll ask me how I'm doing financially. I just say, I'm doing okay. And that, and I think that's more of his big concern right now, right? It's just every, you know, if you're a parent, you want to make sure that your kids are okay. And and so that's that that's kind of as far as I'll let him in because I know if I say any more than that, then the the, the kind of digs or the cheap shots come in. So yes. our conversations are, but I, I think you know that brings up another good point of you know setting boundaries with people, right? Mm, of you know absolutely. it's okay to definitely set boundaries with people, and and just because you know you're talking to someone doesn't mean that you're automatically their emotional punching bag, right? It's okay to say, you know what? I really don't appreciate that you say that. And, and, I, and I've had these conversations with my family and I can also say that, you know, sometimes it really does fall on, on um, you know, they, they just, they can't, they can't hear it, right? They've always seen us in a certain light and that hasn't been through a successful lens. So when we do start to experience success, they have a hard time envisioning what that looks like because it just, it wasn't their experience with us, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen. It just means that it hadn't it hasn't happened yet. Hmm. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, we've got a great question in the chat. You could talk about charging money to people. Uh, I feel like I have a lot to offer, but feel bad charging people. How do you feel? Sure. So it it really depends on um, you know. I, for me, this is kind of a, a personal question, which I don't I don't mind answering. It, it really depends on what your qualifications are. You know, like I'm I'm a a Canadian certified counselor and I'm a, a licensed therapist. So, you know, I, I have the, uh, the education, the experience and the, the qualifications to be able to charge money. So I think a big part of it is looking at, you know, what, what do you have as far as qualifications? What do you have as experience? Um, you know, and, and I also want to say that, you know, the, the education piece, although, um, it is important for me, it was a piece of paper. Like I, I had, I was, I'm usually the exception to the rule. So I got into a master's of education program without having a bachelor of education. So they made an exception in my case because of all the experience that I had working um, with neurodivergent youth in, in a lot of different ways on like on the front line, right? So I was able to bring that experience and, and they saw the value in that. So it really does depend. I mean, if you're not in a, um, you know, in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If you're not, if you don't have like a, a governing body, right? Then I, I think it's a little hazy, like because with with counselors, we we have a, a code of ethics that we have to follow, and there are certain rules that apply to that. Um, and usually within a, a certain, um, you know, if it's a, a life coach or whatever, you know, sometimes life coaches they're um, they don't really have set fees, and and they're not really governed by anybody and so it's kind of a you know the wild west where everybody can just kind of do what they want um so it gets a little bit trickier that way but a lot of times if if you're in a certain industry there's usually uh, an industry industry standard for how much you can charge uh and some of that comes with confidence of knowing your worth um you know i started off at a certain amount and when i started i had people tell me oh that's too much nobody's going to pay that nobody batted an eye and then you know uh, four years later, I, I raised my rates again, and the same people told me, oh, that's too much. Nobody will pay for that. Nobody batted an eye again, right? So I think part of it is having confidence in yourself to understand what your worth is. I think part of your worth comes from the success that you you achieve with your clients. I think that's a, a big part of it. Absolutely. Okay, uh, last question. I heard about your amazing work at the at uh, University of Connecticut, uh, UConn. Can you, can you tell us more about all the things you do at UConn? 
Sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll just give a little bit of background on the, the project. It's a, a five-year project and it was a two and a half million dollar uh, funding grant. And the, the goal of the program is to recruit and retain neurodivergent students for their civil and environmental engineering programs. And so it was um, to be um, involved with this for me is amazing because I'm not an engineer, um, but I'm, I can provide insight into helping the students um, and also the, the fac faculty kind of understand um, you know, what our thought process is like and kind of what we go through and, and working collaboratively as part of a team. So I'm, I'm a guest lecturer at the University of Yukon um, for the civil and environmental engineering programs. And so uh, I'll give lectures to fa faculties with students, um, you know, on, on a variety of different topics. Uh, I also get to help consult in some of the resources that are developed and I'm also on the advisory board. Uh, so I'm really involved in a lot of different uh, facets and and I I mean I couldn't be more thrilled as far as I know this is the first kind of uh, endeavor of its kind so um, you know I, I really think that this is going to become the blueprint for a lot of other universities to to follow um, so it's it's very very exciting that's incredible something that came to mind so you're since you're up in Canada do you have any quick analysis and comparing and contrasting how autism is seen and treated in the US versus Canada well, a key indicator for me, Nathan, would be the, the amount of followers that I have on social media. So like, <laughs> just, you know, I haven't used MailChimp in a, in a while, um, but based on my my MailChimp stats, uh, I have more followers in Florida than I do all of Canada. Um, so, uh, you know, the different states are much more progressive than others. And again, yes. like having worked in Maine as a therapeutic foster parent and, and seeing the services that were available there and then coming back to New Brunswick, Canada, um, I, I describe as not, not a step back in time, but a giant leap. So wow. just right across the border, the services that are available uh, are just unreal. You know, I, the, the job that I had, I'll mention them because they're, uh, the training that I received from them, no other company has ever come close to, to matching. And, and it's really the foundation of what I do. And it's uh, Spurwink Services uh, based out of Maine. And they are just, they're, I got goosebumps, man. They're such an incredible company. And um you know, I just, I met so many amazing people and we had so much support uh, from the people there and, and they were just so practical, real and authentic that it, it just, it made the experience a, a tremendous one for both my wife and I. That's incredible. Cause sometimes me and my friends joke cause uh, here in the US, we, we often complain about the healthcare system and one would think that the healthcare system like say in Canada would be, it, on paper it looks far superior to the US, but <laughs> Sounds like it sounds like it's maybe not the case for for uh, no no diversity, just iron ironic in some ways. Yeah, well, see, and and that's kind of the the thing. Like, yes, we do have universal health care, um, but there are there are limits to that. And and although and so a big challenge is happening right now is within our education system. So when when people um, suspect that they may be neurodivergent, they you know maybe autistic or have ADHD or some form of learning disability, uh, it, it used to be that our education system would say, okay, it'll be a year, a year long wait. And um, I don't know if it was, you know, two governments ago, uh, they decided to let a bunch of the school psychologists go and they hired a bunch of behavioral interventionists. And wow. that went horribly. They let all the behavior interventionists go, but then they didn't hire back the school psychologists. And so then, you know, they went from saying it would be a year or two, we can't tell you. Uh, and so now really people are having to pay out of pocket uh, and, and to meet with private psychologists in order to get these assessments. And they're not cheap. I mean, they're, yes. they're between, you know, 1500 upwards of 4,000, depending on what you're, oh. you're trying to get assessed for. So, you know, again, a lot of the families who require these are likely, you know, hovering or below the poverty line. So, you know, they don't just have $4,000 lying around. Um, you know, in, in some cases, if there are, uh, if the, if it is a complex case, uh, they, they may kind of jump ahead of the line as, as they should. It's kind of a, a triage type of setup. Um, but we just, we don't, we don't have the resources. Uh, one of the, the challenges for me being here, um, it, you know, is <laughs> like I've been shunned by pretty much every disability related organization um, because I, I operate from a different mindset of things can change. You know, a, a lot of the folks that are here, they, they grew up here, they went to school here and now they work here. They only have one point of reference to kind of draw from. 
And so the mentality is, well, this is how things are. It's the way that they've always mm -hmm. been. It's the way that they're always going to be. And so they don't know another way. Right. And so kind of what I'm able to bring to the picture is, no, there is another way. I, I'm a thought leader in the industry. I'm just not recognized here. Right. So the irony for me is that, you know, I went to two different local universities. Um, none of them have been in touch, but yet I'm, I'm sought after by the University of Miami and UConn <laughs> to be a guest lecturer. Right. So for me, it, and those are the types of things that are validating. Right. Like I always tell people, and this is good, you know, to circle back to the entrepreneurship piece. I always tell entrepreneurs, like your business may be local, but your market is global. And when you really restrict yourself to thinking that business will come from, you know, if you're only relying on local business for your survival, you're likely going to starve. So, mm -hmm. you know, you really do need to think. And when I had that mindset of, of you know, this could be global, um, I taught myself, you know, I wasn't really making money. So I taught myself how to use a bunch of the different social media platforms and was able to, you know, I, I people just started following me. I was just sharing a little you know, sayings that I'd come up with with a graphic. And like, that's how I, I met uh, Eileen Gruba, who's my celebrity brand ambassador. She's been on The Watchmen, Sons of Anarchy, Nip Tuck, CSI Miami, wow. um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, another, another person, uh, Steve Rohr, who used to be the publicist for the Oscars, uh, followed me and I, I sent him a message and I was like, hey man, uh, would you be interested in having a Skype call with me? And he said, yes, right? And then he became one of my advisors and he helped me prepare for speeches and, and interviews and all kinds of stuff. So, wow. you know, when, when people resonate with you, right? Like everybody loves an underdog. They love the story. So get out there and share your story. It, it can definitely be a, a part of your business, right? It, it's not about like everybody goes from A to C, but not everybody shares B and B is the context that, that invites people into your world to share that part of yourself that will help you and your business. Right. But again, it, it needs to be a good fit. It, it's not always, um, you know, it, everything has to line up just right. And, and this is something that I, I, I enjoy having conversations with uh, entrepreneurs about. Like I, I mentor different entrepreneurs, different companies. I, I make time um, out of my week to connect with different people and have Skype calls or Zoom calls because I being a social entrepreneur, it's a big part of giving back. Right. Your your legacy is not based on what you take. It, it, it's from what you give, right? And I think that's that's another big part that I think is important to mention. You know, it's it's all about giving back. You know, when you think Absolutely. that all you're going to do is take, then you're you're a big part of the problem, not the solution. Absolutely. Get almost out of time, but the here's the hardest question of all: Who are you most grateful to, and who, who slash who, who do you want to thank for helping you to get to this point in your life? <sighs> um. You know, as as much as my childhood was hard, um, I do thank my parents because uh, although they didn't do things the right way, um, they didn't know what the right way was. They they did push me to do a lot of different things, um, and ultimately, I am who I am because of those experiences. Right? I, I wouldn't wish I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy, but I'm also at a point now where I wouldn't trade them for the world. Right. So it, it inadvertently and, and I'll, you know, I'll be blunt, man. You know, I um, I don't know if you're a parent or not, Nathan, but I read yeah. an article a few years ago about, you know, um, how to fuck up your kids. And, <laughs> and the reality is we all do it to some extent. Right. Like I'm not going to do it to my kids the same way my parents did it to me, but it's going to be different. But we're all going to screw up our kids somehow. Like it's it's just it's inevitable. They're they're It's a generational thing. I think each generation vows to do something different than the last. But, but even though that there is that difference, we're still going to do it in some capacity. So I think the goal is just to try to be better. That that really is the goal. Absolutely, Sean. Okay. Oh, I, I, if I could, I should also thank my wife. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I would not want this to go through without me thanking her. I mean, she she has taken on, you know, a full-time job and two part-time jobs. To, and again, wow. to go back to the... That how this stuff all works, right? I, I couldn't have done this without her. Like she has a full-time job where she's a, a director uh, of counselors for the sexual, uh, sexual, uh, sexual violence, New Brunswick. Um, and she also teaches part-time at Dalhousie University and St. Thomas University um, in their social work faculties. So, you know, she's had to kind of pick up the slack in other areas, like financially, so that we could make a go of this. And, and I'm very proud to say that, you know, I'm at a point now where I'm I'm starting to earn the money that I thought I would a few years ago. So things things are you know I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's for sure. So I definitely awesome. want to thank her. Yep, that's thank you, Lloyd. That's very important. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, and and we're running out of time. So to close, uh, here is Sean's contact information web and websites to uh, to follow him. To close, being neurodivergent with conditions just autism and ADHD and Tourette's, it means we are different and not broken. These differences should be celebrated, and we are not alone. Thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, thank you, Sean, for coming, and thank you, everyone, for listening today. And catch another episode of the Neurosoc Podcast. And and thank you, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me, Nathan. It's always great talking to you, man. I really enjoy our our, our talks. I love your insight. I I think the tips will really help people who are on the fence. Thanks. I <laughs> thank appreciate you. it. And have a great day. And take care, you everyone. Too. Bye. Bye.